So there's almost this, you know, I think aversion to spending money. I've been like that for years. Drip was a seven-figure SaaS business before we got acquired. And I was still doing things I should not have been doing because I was so traumatized by the early days where you, where you have no money. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. A few weeks ago on this podcast, Ian and myself reflected a little bit on our feelings about venture capital and this new trend of accelerators, funds, and investors that are focused on businesses in our community. And uh, we got a little ranty and we talked about some of the maybe more negative elements. And, And yeah, in our fairness to our reflections, they were a bit of a rant. And unsurprisingly, several listeners of the show called us out on being a little bit too general and vague in our thoughts. And fair enough, absolutely right. It's an important topic, obviously one that we're really passionate about. And so this year in 2019, we plan to do a few shows about the topic, and this is one of the first. So one of the people who reached out to us after the introduction to that show a few weeks back was someone who had previously owned and then sold a successful software as a service company and has actually recently started an accelerator fund called Tiny Seed, specifically designed for bootstrappers. He's also someone that many listeners of this show are well familiar with. So at this point, I'm just going to say, take it away, boss man. Our guest on today's show, somebody that I really respect, somebody that I've known for a while, somebody that has what I would call a sister podcast, and a sister conference. Welcome to the show, Rob Walling. My pleasure, sir. It's nice to chat with you again. Where are you coming to us from? I am in Minneapolis. We just recently purchased a house after uh, we moved here when I sold Drip to Lead Pages a few years ago. I'm glad to hear that you're going through the construction woes that we all do as we buy a house. So I don't hear any sanding or banging right now, but sounds like that's what's been going on in your life. Yeah, it's, I have a good noise-canceling headset that keeps that out of the out of the podcast. You know, it's the highs and lows of home ownership. You buy it and it's like, this is great. I love owning my own house. And then you go through months of construction. It's like, this sucks. I hate owning. I'll never own again. So you sold Drip to uh, Lead Pages. And if we back up further from there, you've had a couple exits. You run a podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us. You have a conference, MicroConf. How did you get started on this journey? Well, I'm a software developer and... I'm unemployable. I just didn't like working for other people. And I invested in real estate in Los Angeles in the early 2000s and thought that would be my ticket out of working for other people. And then at a certain point realized I have no advantage in that. But I have an advantage in essentially startups, although it's more like software products is how I started. And so I realized there's only so many people that can build and market those. It took me several years, but around 2008, 2009, I was finally living off product income from software products. So that gets us here. I love your story too, Rob, because it's one that doesn't hit the front page of the newspaper. You're like a guy that was swinging for years and years and years. Finally, you've achieved some of the things that you're working for, like financial freedom 
having a beautiful family, being okay, not being employable. Yeah. A lot of people think this happens overnight, but for you, it was, what, a five, 10-year journey? Yeah. Yeah. From the time I really started cranking and building stuff nights and weekends until I was just making a full-time living, so it was like 120K a year, it took me almost nine years, nights and weekends on and off. And you know, during that time, we had a child and moved several times. So it's not like I did it constantly for nine years, but on and off, that's what I was seeking. Throughout that nine years, did you feel like you were behind the curve? Like, did you have this thought like, oh, this is taking me too long or this isn't where I want to be the whole time while you're there? That's an interesting question. I never felt like I was behind the curve because there just wasn't a curve out there. I had no expectations that, oh, I should be able to in a year or two, you know, have financial freedom because I just didn't think that. What really got me going there were two pivotal moments for me. One was in 2005 where I acquired a software product and I ramped it up. It was doing almost, it was doing $200 a month and I ramped it up to three or 4,000 a month. And I realized, oh, if I did this just a couple more times, I'm done. And then the other one was, of course, like many of us, when I read the four-hour work week. And I read it in 2007, I believe. I saw it like the week it came out at Borders or Barnes & Noble. And that was when I realized, oh, there's other people thinking about this. That was where I started getting I won't say more serious because I always was you know, serious about it, but I saw that it was more possible and I really put the pedal to the metal and still took another couple of years there. I don't think I'm envious of people that are starting out on this journey these days because there's so much benchmarking going on, right? It's like everywhere you look, it's like this person did it faster, this person has more money, this person has more people on their team. Yeah. Back when you did it, there was like none of that going on. Like you said, you were lucky to find anybody that was even thinking about these types of things. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think we could do with a little less comparison and keeping up with the Joneses these days. For me, it was the first goal was to make enough money that I didn't have to work for anybody else. So just to have a simple 100K a year you know, product income, that's a big deal, right? And then the next goal after that was, okay, can I get to the point where I never have to work again? You know, And then that was another 10 years. You know, <laughs> And once you get there, the arrival fallacy gets you where it's like, I remember being super happy with full-time product income for about six months before I became like, well, this isn't good enough. I need this and that, you know, or is this going to last? Or I was nervous the whole time. And what if this gets shut down? What if Google updates my this and that, you know? And my advice is like, try not to make it a struggle, try to make it a journey. You know, I think there's a difference. During this journey, I think you figured out what we figured out too, which is like, it's lonely. Got to start a podcast. So you started Startups for the Rest of Us, essentially started talking with Mike Tabor about the businesses that you were building. Through that, eventually came your events, MicroConf. How long have you guys been doing both of those? The podcast we've been doing for nine years. This is 2019, and I'm doing math right. And MicroConf is eight years. We started that in 2011. And we started doing it once a year, and then twice a year, and now we do three, three conferences a year. So we've done quite a few. I think we're up to like our 16th or 17th conference. And in terms of the podcast and the conference, you know, a lot of the reasons why I think we started, I'll speak for myself, was because it was a lonely journey and because we needed to reach out to other people that were thinking alike and doing similar things. And that's great. As long as you continue to be, I think, for me, a practitioner. But there's been times where we've not been practitioners, like we sold our businesses and whatnot. It always feels a little bit weird to me going to these conferences during that time because then it's like, oh, I just have this conference. So how does that feel for you? 
as a conference organizer. Do you view yourself as an organizer or a practitioner at the conference? That's actually a good thing to think about. I think for the majority, the vast majority of the time we've run microconf, I have been actively working on software projects, just back to back to back. And to finally have a break from one, frankly, because I left Drip almost a year ago now, to finally have a break and be able to attend microconf has been, I've been totally fine with it because I feel like I have so many wounds (laughs) that (laughs) some have healed and some haven't that like those carry over. Like I will always, even if I never start another software company again, I feel like I will always identify as I'm a founder of software companies. You know, that that's just been the most pivotal. I've been doing it for, if you look literally, it's like, you know, 16 years, I was basically building software products. And that's a long time for me, you know, and a long time to do the same thing. So I don't necessarily feel like bad about that I'm not actively growing one right now, because I still feel like through the podcast and the conference and my current effort, Tiny Seed, what, what I'm working on, I'm having so many conversations with founders that I almost feel like I'm getting a broader view. I always have pulled on the experience of, of the other founders around me, much like you guys have. You know, that's why, that's why we started these things, I think, was to learn from each other. But I have more headspace for it now because I'm not so concerned about my own software company that I'm able to now get data point after data point from founders I'm talking to. I do want to talk a little bit about Tiny Seed, which is your newest venture. Just another question about these conferences and kind of your identity as a founder. You know, it was one of the things I struggled with for a while. It was like I invested all this time and energy into becoming a product designer and understanding manufacturing and eventually moved away from it. How do you feel about that? Like you spent the last 16 years developing the skill set, which you were very good at. And to just kind of say like, this is a really great, you know, money generating machine for me, lifestyle generating machine. It's done a lot of things for you, I think, and to kind of leave that skill set, or at least actively leave that skill set. You know, with Tiny Seed, you're going to be, I think, kind of managing other people with that skill set. But to leave that skill set yourself, what does that feel like? You know, the interesting thing is I started making some small angel investments. My first one was in 2011, and then I've made a total of about a dozen. And I have found that I've really enjoyed advising the companies who have pulled me in, basically, who who give me more than just a monthly update and ask my advice and we get on calls. And I've found that a huge chunk of my knowledge and experience has transferred across multiple companies. What I like is that I'm continuing to build on something, a skill that I've developed over these 18 years. There was one point, like right when I was thinking about leaving Drip, where it was like, well, I'm not going to start another software company maybe I should go start or acquire like a content site in the board game space. And, you know, because it'd be fun and I like tabletop games and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things I struggled with is I'm not going to be using almost any of the knowledge in my head. You know, I'm going to use a little bit of marketing and a little bit of monetization, but that doesn't take advantage of exactly what you're saying, which are the hard knocks of building and growing SaaS apps. And that's one thing where, you know, if you look at my whole trajectory, the blog, the podcast, the conference, even the online community founder cafe, it's like all that just keeps building on itself and being able to do tiny seed where I'm going to be advising or mentoring a group, you know, a batch of companies that's fulfilling me already. And I'm not even doing it full time yet, if that makes sense. So I don't think I will miss boots on the ground. I did it. I enjoyed it. I had success with it, but I am ready for the next challenge. I got a little tired of it. I'm guessing that I'm not going to miss it, but you are right. I will not be actively using the skills. I will be more actively helping others 
you know, learn the same skills is kind of how I view it. So go ahead and tell us what Tiny Seed is, why you started it, and what you're looking to achieve. Yeah, I describe Tiny Seed as it's the first startup accelerator designed for founders who would typically bootstrap their companies. And, you know, kind of the impetus behind starting it is I've been wondering for years why there's not more support for bootstrap founders, right? For folks in our community. And specifically, I focus on software because that's my expertise, but it's frankly, it could be, you know, you could look at one for e-commerce or WordPress or whatever. And I've watched Y Combinator do pretty amazing things and get pretty amazing results. I've always had respect for Paul Graham. I've watched funding help propel some founders to do great things. Others, it completely tanks them or tanks the business. I've just felt like there's an in-between between bootstrapping and venture funding. And why isn't there a third option? You know, it's been something I've asked myself for years. And so half of my angel investments that I've made are kind of like investing in bootstrappers. It's non-institutional money. It's we're going to raise a couple hundred grand from 10 people and you may never raise again. You know, you're doing it to get to profitability. And that's an amazing concept to me. It's like gets you to escape velocity, but you don't have the baggage of a board and all the governance and even the reporting requirements and all, all the stuff that comes along with that. And I wanted to see something like that exist in our world and to help bootstrappers. And so given the exposure that I have to folks through the conference and the podcast and all that, it just kind of made sense. At one point, what really happened, the final impetus for it was I did a conference talk. It was all about this certain thing. And then last five minutes, I barely mentioned the idea of basically raising a single round and never raising again, kind of like a bootstrappers, you know, fund strapping is kind of how I've heard it described. That five minutes got way more attention and interest. And people came up and said, are you doing this? And I was like, yeah, I've done it a few times. Are you writing checks? I don't know that I have much more to invest. Well, someone should make this a fund. Like someone should raise money and do this. And I was like, yeah, someone should go do that. And it occurred to me like, who's the person to go do that? I'm as good as any, I think, you know. Part of the reason why we got to know each other is because we were both bootstrappers. So if you could just tell us, what is a bootstrapper and what is a VC funded firm? What are the differences? A bootstrapper is someone who, you know, starts their company with no outside investment and tends to be, you could argue about different definitions, but a bootstrapper, in my opinion, doesn't have a hundred grand in the bank to put into their own business. That's when you become self-funded, in my opinion. And it's just a different, it's not a comparison thing of like, oh, I bootstrapped versus self-funded. But when I started Drip, I had other businesses throwing off cash and I invested 150, 200 grand to get Drip off the ground. So I wouldn't technically say I bootstrapped it, even though maybe I did. But bootstrapping is, you know, it's a long, hard road, but you also maintain full control. And most of the people in both of our communities do that. And then venture funding is where you get to some type of product out there you need, and then you raise like a pre-seed round or a seed round, which winds up being 200 to 500 grand. And then you have a plan of, I'm going to burn this money in 18 months, and I'm going to try to raise a venture round at that point, which is institutional money from these big venture capitalists. And that's your Series A, which will be a few million bucks or even more these days. And then they basically say, all right, burn through it in 18 months and do a Series B. And it's this crazy treadmill. And if it works, then you can become Uber and Facebook and Airbnb. And if it doesn't, which it doesn't most of the time, 80%, 90%, whatever, it doesn't, and you just crash and burn. Even if you even if you built a good product and you got some traction, you do tend to be, I'm speaking in generalities, but you tend to be pushed to go to 100 million or a billion or to burn up. 
and that's where bootstrapping you don't tend to make that mistake you know and so you can keep your company around longer even if it's just a measly little five or ten million dollar company you know right these are the types of businesses that we build yes because to us that's our sweet spot but like to venture capitalists they don't have any interest in five or ten million dollar businesses because it doesn't make sense for their fund it's not that they're dumb people or they're mean it's that their whole model is built on these really big you know kind of unicorn home runs and like you said these are two totally different models one is the bootstrap to a couple million dollars or to a lifestyle business or to basically whatever you want it to be because you have full control the other is you have some kind of exit velocity so it's 100 million dollars it's an acquisition it's a very narrow path that has to work exactly as planned or else it doesn't work at all those are the two models. I think what you're introducing and what a couple other people are introducing is somewhere in between. And so I'm really curious, because we're still in the early stages, to understand how that's going to work out. I think, number one, that you have a very unique competitive advantage. You have a conference room full of bootstrappers, essentially, and you have a podcast that speaks to bootstrappers. And so you're uniquely suited to serve this market. And I think that that's really important because uh, you have access to all these people. And then you also have access to money. It's kind of like a perfect storm there. But what I want to start to kind of explore with you is this lottery ticket thing. So like, I don't know what the statistics are on on people that win the lottery, like how many of them end up going broke after like nine months or like end up in bankruptcy five years later. My guess is it's pretty high because they've never had money before and they don't know how to manage their money. So what do you think, first of all, it's going to happen when you drop a pile of cash on people that aren't used to having a pile of cash? It's an interesting question. And it's one that I've already been able to play around with in my angel investing lab because I've done five or six of these already. And what I found is that the founders who I have written the checks to, they've tended to raise rounds. Again, these are folks who are bootstrappers and are raising this single round and really plan to get the profitability from there and just grow a company. And the rounds have been in the, I believe it's two to $400,000 range, which is more money than bootstrappers typically have access to, right? A lot more money. But what I've actually seen is there's more capital efficiency. Like the bootstrapper mindset is to be so capital efficient that I've had to encourage some of them to like ease up a little bit on the purse strings. You know, it's like you do have 300 grand in the bank. Why are you still answering support emails? Well, because I don't want to hire a support person. It's like, no, this is why you need to do this. You need to figure out that balance. So there's almost this, you know, I think aversion to spending money. I've been like that for years. I mean, even when Drip was growing, Drip was a seven-figure SaaS business before we got acquired. And I was still doing things I should not have been doing because I was so traumatized by the early days where you where you have no money. So I think it's it may be the opposite of what a lot of us think where Sure, you could have an irresponsible founder who blows through it you know, quickly, but what I've seen is either they have a pretty level head or they've tended to be a little tight with the purse strings. That's where coaching or advising or you know, just saying, hey, I think, you could, I think it's okay for you to spend the money on this you know, is okay. And then I also think it's who the founder is, right? That's, that's all about evaluating the founder. I haven't invested in folks who would be crazy with the money because I wanted my investment to last. So let's talk about that here in just a second. Because that's essentially what you're doing is with companies that are this early stage, the ones that you're investing in, you know, these aren't mature companies. A lot of times there's hardly a company, quote company there at all. It's more of like an idea or something that's working a little bit. Essentially, you're investing in the founder. But I want to hit on something that you just said, which is that these founders, 
that can be extremely frugal because that's the way that they've operated for a long time. But isn't that constraint? Isn't that my back is up against the wall? Can't that be a good thing? Oh, I definitely think it can be. I think in my journey of becoming an entrepreneur, one time that I made a huge amount of progress in a short time was when I wrote a check for $11,000 to buy a software product from some guys. And this $11,000 was more money than I had ever seen in a bank account ever. I had worked for two years as a consultant to put that in there. And so it was a ton of money for me. I had never spent more than four grand on a car as an example. Like, I, you know, and this, this was a lot of money. I spent that money, I acquired this product and the product was kind of shitty. Like it was buggy. The customers were pissed off. It was an alpha version. I've kind of felt like, oh my gosh, I just got duped, but my back was to the wall. So I started, I was working my day job and then I'd come home and I'd work like 30 hours in the nights and weekends because I had to make it work because I had just written that check. So the answer is yes, I do think back to the wall is helpful. On the flip side, I've seen a lot of founders who are consulting during the day because they have a spouse or a house or just a normal kind of Western lifestyle, so to speak. And they have to keep their day job or they have to have some kind of income, you know, a non-inconsequential income stream. And so they're only able to get 10, 15, 20 hours a week on their product. And that lack of focus, and it's the worst time of the day, you know, it's like the 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have a kid that they put to bed at eight or whatever. So to me, it's less about giving them money to spend on a bunch of stuff and more about getting that full-time focus on the product. And that's where I think the trade-off is. Back to the wall is great. But I still think your back's to the wall. You know, we're an accelerator, so we're going to write checks in the hundred to 150,000 range, right? It's not like you have years of runway. Your back is still kind of to the wall if you're going to build a software company, you know, and get it to the place where it's supporting you. So my hope is that there's a balance of that, that we can give people focus, but also maintain that, yeah, your back is still kind of to the wall, or at least it will be when this funding runs out. I just started to think a little bit about you and your journey. And what popped into my mind as you're saying this, you kind of did what you're describing now. Yep. And obviously now you're a little bit older, you're a little bit more mature, but think about yourself back then. Do you think you would be in the same place that you are today if you got what you're offering? Ooh, that's a good question. Man, I don't know. It's hard for me to answer that, honestly, because the years of toiling and nights and weekends were so frustrating. They were so frustrating. But they made me who I am, right? So I, I think there's a certain amount of that toiling that you still need to do. And that's a thing. So, you know, our applications opened last week. So I've had a couple dozen conversations already with founders. And what I'm noticing, I'm already noticing patterns that I had expected, but are, are being confirmed now. And it's that the folks I'm talking to are, it's not as if they have an idea and they want 125K to do it. A lot of these folks have been doing the toil and it's like, oh, I've been 18 months, nights and weekends on this already. And those are the founders that, in my opinion, are probably going to get it done rather than the ones who've been thinking about it for 18 months. Right. So while maybe they don't have as many years of toil as you or I had, I do think that there are some signals of folks who are probably going to have success. And it's the ones who've pushed things forward, even though it's been hard. And so that is part of what I ask folks, like, what have been your biggest struggles? How long have you been working on this or other ideas? And some people have been working for several, <laughs> several years on different ideas, nights and weekends. And that, to me, is a sign of some type of perseverance. If I'm going to get this done, kind of no matter what, I'm going to make this happen eventually. That's what I'm hoping to be able to identify in people. How do you identify that in people? What's part of your process? 
You know, it's a lot about what you talked about earlier, which is it's so much about the founder, right? I always heard, you know, venture capitalists or whatever talk about what do you look for in an idea? And they'll say, well, it's, I'm investing more in the founders than the ideas because the idea can change. Now more than ever, after making just even the dozen angel investments that I'm seeing, that's totally true. Because almost all the companies that I've invested in did not ultimately do the idea that I invested in. But the founders got shit done. And so they figured it out. Drip did two or three. There weren't pivots, but they were like shifts in market focus. and sh- I mean, it was a totally different product by the end than what we started with. But there were two founders working on it that were just going to make it work no matter what. You know, if we had to pivot into being an e-commerce platform, we would have done it. We were just pushing forward. And then I think there are other factors like someone's network. Some people just have a great network and they know how to connect. That's a nice factor. And then you look at like, what are their chops in certain areas? Like, are they technical? Are they marketing? Do they have SaaS experience? And it's just, it's asking a lot of questions. It's, it is similar to me in my, because I've done hundreds, literally hundreds of job interviews in the you know, 18 years, whether I was hiring for myself or for companies I worked at. And it's a very similar process. You're just trying to suss out someone's personality with a sequence of questions. And it just so happens the traits of someone who I would hire to work for me are not the same as founders, because I think founders have a different mindset. If I tried to find people who were willing to work for me, there's certain traits that are not adaptive to being a founder. You know, it's like listening to the status quo or, you know, following my lead or whatever. Like some founders probably shouldn't do that. I have changed my criteria in my head. And, you know, lucky for me, I have a good team. I have a co-founder named Anar Volset, who's also helping with this. I've actually pulled Sherry Walling, my wife who's been on the show. She's a psychologist. I want like diverse voices to look at, you know, these founders and to just try to suss out who we think can do it and who we think's a fit. Because you can have a founder, you know, you look at Travis Kalanick, like he's a founder of Uber, right? Co-founder of Uber, I guess, and did amazing things. But we could find him and be like, man, he's ambitious. He's not a fit for us. What is it about somebody like his, his personality that you feel like would conflict with your culture? I think that there's a certain level of valuing success over relationships, over other people. And whether those relationships are with your customers or with your employees or with investors or mentors, I've just always placed a value on relationships. There's a certain amount of empathy that I want if I'm going to interact with people in an ongoing basis, you know. Today's show is sponsored by dynamitejobs.co. It's our newest baby and target something we're passionate about here at the TMBA helping your business succeed through growing amazing remote teams. And we know from personal experience just how hard it can be to find the right people. And that's why we've designed Dynamite Jobs to address that problem. So starting at as low as $200, we can help you find your next remote team member. And for $500, we'll handpick the best candidates using a pre-vetting process. We call it Wise Match. And it's designed to save you days, even weeks of your time determining the top-ranking candidates for the role that you need. And for those of you seeking remote jobs, I urge you to register with us. It's completely free. I promise you we're not just the next job board. We want to work actively with you to identify ideal positions for your skill set. So whether you're looking to hire great people or whether you're one of those great people who feels that your skills are wasted in your current company and you want more freedom and flexibility in your life, check out dynamitejobs.co today. I want to touch on something that you mentioned and it was pivoting. 
you know, when you look at these founders, what are some of the traits that allow them to be able to pivot? Like, what are some of the things that make a founder able to see through all the smoke and fire and get to the next thing? That's a good question because it's hard and it's not clear. And as I did that with Drip, with my co-founder, Derek, there were a lot of mixed signals. And so it's not being smart and it's not just looking at an Excel spreadsheet and it's not just gut feeling, but it's a mixture of those three things. And it's being willing to ask for advice and being a little bit coachable. The other thing I think is there's this tough balance, man. There were a lot of decisions that you make. There are a lot of decisions you make as you're growing a company where you have a vision for where you want to go. And I think that's important to have a vision, but you can't hold on to it too tightly. One of the ways I might sum up that last point that you made is founders getting their identity too wrapped up in the product. Like they become the product and it becomes immovable, right? Because when you question the product, then you start to question them and their ego doesn't allow that. And so I think, um, a lot of what I've seen is like people essentially with pliable egos. Yes, I think that's a really good way to put it. That's why being a founder is hard because you're making hard decisions that have somewhat permanent consequences with incomplete information. No school, no book can prepare you for having to do that. I want to touch on this idea of mentorship because I feel like what you're offering and, and what a lot of these firms offer is kind of this idea of mentorship. I'm just not sure how much value there is there. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. So tell a little bit of a a story of how we got started and see if you can relate. So at the time, the product business that we sold in 2015, I was a product designer. That's what I got my background in. Dan was the vice president of the company, of this manufacturing and design company. And then there was the president and owner of the company. And one day, I decided that I was tired of working there because I saw all this opportunity, right? I was exposed to these factories. I was exposed to the supply chain. And I thought, I can do this on my own. I can control my destiny, read the four-hour work week. And I thought, this is great. But I needed these guys to accomplish my dreams. I needed Dan because he was my friend. He was really smart. I could see what I was good at and what he was good at. And then I needed the owner of the company because he had all the relationships and he had basically our seed money. We essentially got a loan for, I think it was like $50,000. It wasn't even called a loan. It was just like, hey, pay for this container of goods that we need to ship over here. And so we entered this relationship and it was 33, 33, 33. And eventually, I think a year and a half down the road, Dan and I ended up buying him out. But I entered this relationship where I only had 33% of the equity. I had given away the other 66% to my co-founders. You know, I think looking back now, you know, I wouldn't have a lot of the freedom and financial freedom and and personal freedom that I have right now if I only had 33% of that company. It just wouldn't have been a good deal. But what that got me initially was these relationships. It got me into those factories immediately. It got me exactly what I needed to manufacture a product and to sell a product like within months, weeks. And so it was extremely valuable. Giving away all that equity like wouldn't have worked for me long term. But I absolutely had to give up that equity to get these relationships in the beginning. But nowhere in that conversation was like the idea of money or equity for mentorship. Like I was just buying the relationships. I was buying the supply chain. So I'm curious about your thoughts on this idea that like we're trading equity in our company. We're giving up a little bit of control maybe in certain cases for mentorship. What does mentorship mean? 
you know, I view mentorship as kind of broken down into four segments. And I wish there was a better way to explain this because most people think of mentorship as like someone's going to come in and tell me what to do, or they're going to answer questions when I have them. There's a lot more to it than that. And I think the first thing is what you said, it's tapping into someone else's network. So folks that I have backed as an angel investor and folks that, that will be backing with Tiny Seed, like they have access to my network, which I have taken for granted for years. Starting Tiny Seed has shown me how many people I actually know and how many people will respond to an email just because we've hung out once, right? Or, or like I can email you and Dan and just be like, hey, da, 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 because we've been to each other's conferences. And it's like, knowing a lot of people is a big deal. And so that's where I feel like the, both myself and our mentors, the network effect of those people is tremendous. So a couple examples of that. In the last week, two of companies I've invested in as an angel investor, one is looking at potentially raising a series A. And I introduced him to two different venture capitalists that I know, and I can vouch for him and that I've been in boardrooms with. So it's not some type of cold intro. It's like, when I emailed them instantly, they're like, absolutely, would love to have a look, you know, and if you cold email them, a venture capitalist, it just, it's not going to be there. Someone else asked me, hey, I think I might be doing like an AppSumo deal in the next couple months. And I'm trying to figure out how to configure like my Stripe, this and that. And I was like, you know, I've never done this, but I know two people who have, would you like intros? And instead of him searching around on the internet, you know, or trying to figure it on his own, I connected him and instantly this guy gave him a bunch of advice. So like those are two simple examples, but literally in the past seven days, I've done that. And these are for companies that I'm tied into. I just don't have the time to do that for everyone who emails me. You know, I don't do that for cold emails to give an intro to a VC, but I do do it for folks who, uh, you know, who I know. And, you know, and I think that's also kind of an understanding with, you know, with folks that we've brought on as mentors that they'll do what they can to help the companies as well. You know, I'm trying to distill exactly what the benefit to a bootstrap founder would be. So, what are some of the other things that founders are getting from Tiny Seed by giving up a portion of their company? The mentorship part involves the networking and the intros. Like I said, there is a piece of it that's tactical and technical. You know, when we have mentors like Joanna Weeb, who's a copywriting expert, and Leanna Patch is really good with copy. The third piece, I think, is making hard decisions. Like, you know how this feels like when you're out there on your own and you need to decide whether to pivot or not, you want smart people who have kind of been in your shoes before. And that's where I've given probably the my most effective advice per minute given is with decisions like that, that are hard and big and fuzzy. And you can't just pay a consultant to make that decision. And then the last piece I think is the staying sane part, right? I mean, not burning out and not working yourself too hard. It's a long journey and let's make it a marathon, not a sprint. So in Tiny Seed, you're kind of like the fund manager. You're the one that brings together the money and then you have these outside investors. How much will these investors participate in these companies? You know, one of the cool things about a good chunk of the, the investors in Tiny Seed is that they themselves are founders. Rand Fishkin is an investor. Dharmesh Shah is an investor you know, how involved do you want them to be type thing? It's like, these are wise founders who've grown, you know, HubSpot and Moz and now Rand's doing SparkToro. Some investors, I think, just want to write a check and not do anything. And that's fine too. I think we will let the founders probably control how much they want, you know, to be involved with, with the investors. It's certainly not something they have to do. But like we were talking about at MicroConf here in a couple months, inviting all the founders so we can all meet each other. And then inviting the investors and just doing a mixer, you know, and just being like, hey, these are the people 
that you know your money has gone to. And these are the folks who've written the checks and basically see how it goes and kind of help folks build relationships. One of the questions I have, I guess, is you know if I was signing up for a tiny seed, if I had a company that I thought could benefit from this accelerator, I would want to know like how much access I have to these founders. So let's just say Rand, for example, built Moz. I'm going to build something very similar. Maybe it's not a Moz competitor, but it's in a similar space, similar technology. I need similar you know kinds of resources. You know, how much access would I have to someone like him? Well, that's a good question. I think it's going to be so. There's mentors and there's investors. Let's say that the mentors have you know committed to helping our companies throughout the year, and they've committed to being around for 2019 as the program is out, and so they know that there's you know going to be involvement and potentially in-person stuff, but mostly it'll be calls and and office hours and such. Investors, I think it's purely going to be case by case basis. So Rand in particular is both an investor and a mentor. So I think that he'll make himself generally accessible to people. We'll see how the, how the details of that work out. But there are some investors who are not mentors and really it's going to be up to them. They may be too busy or maybe not. If a founder knows, wants an intro to one of our investors, I will happily ask that investor if he wants to take the call. And I would guess nine times out of 10 that, that they will. And I feel it burn down this river every turn. Hope is off for letter word. Make that money, watch it burn. Oh, but I'm not that old. I want to change gears here a little bit, Rob, and talk about some other areas of interest with bootstrapping and investing. You know, I just like wrote this down before we got on our call. And I was trying to think of like if I was in the situation where I might want to take money, like what are the conditions that I would take them in? And so I kind of jotted down three scenarios. So I'm interested to hear what you think about these three scenarios, and then maybe you can add your own. The first one is, let's say I give up 10% of my company in exchange for money and like mentorship, which I think is similar to what you're doing, which is like, I'm going to intro you to people. I'm going to help you grow this business. We're going to meet up a couple times a year. I might not have direct relevant experience to what you're doing, but certainly I've seen a lot of founders go through this before. I think I can help you. We're also doing either weekly or biweekly office hour calls and mastermind calls with the group. So in addition to the the in-person meetups that I've talked about. So there is a third element that we haven't covered. I view an accelerator as providing money, mentorship, and community. And I think that community piece is big of being in a group of 10 other founders who are all striving for the same thing. There's friendly competition, but there's also comparing notes and being like, what's working for you and what's not? And, and you share the struggle of a cohort. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the Dynamite Circle that we have, I've seen this be immensely powerful for people and the relationships that they've built along the way. And so number one scenario, money in exchange for a percentage of your company in these relationships and mentorship. Number two, percentage of your company in exchange for money and I'd call it like directly relevant mentorship or industry specific knowledge and like a promise of an exit. So it's like, oh my gosh. Here's Rob. This is amazing. I'm building the same thing. He exited. I want to exit. I'm just going to pick his brain and he's going to tell me everything I'm doing right and wrong. And he's going to give me money. And then the third thing or the third scenario would be a percentage of your company in exchange for money and then whatever skills you lack. So let's say I'm building a company and I'm inviting you to come into my company for exchange for for equity. And let's say you're the best at SEO and rankings and paid traffic. So in exchange for a percentage of my company, you come in and you promise me we'll be on the top three search results of Google for the next five years. 
So what I'm trying to do with these scenarios is just kind of figure out what's the most valuable. And I'll tell you what my answer is, and then I want you to weigh in. I think I would pick number three. I think if I had the opportunity to have someone invest in my business, I would do it so when they come in, the instant they come into the business, the company doubles overnight. Something that propels the business forward in a very meaningful way almost immediately. To me, that seems like the most beneficial type of relationship for a bootstrapper. I think I would agree. And I think SEO is one example, but I also think that a lot of companies and especially a lot of SaaS apps, SEO is not going to be the thing that doubles them overnight. What's going to double them overnight is an introduction to someone with an audience in their space. Right. Pat Flynn, right? All right, I'm going to intro you to Pat Flynn and now that could double your business overnight, right? I also think there's a certain amount of advice that can be given on like how to evaluate and hire someone to do a certain thing that bootstrappers struggle with a lot, which is just being able to evaluate something that's outside of their skill set, right? So if you're going to hire an SEO or hire someone to do AdWords or hire a copywriter, I think that knowing how to interview them and hire a good one is, is a challenge and being able to like guide it through that, I think is pretty powerful. The other thing I'll say is that we have, Anar and I have already had conversations about this exact topic of giving someone money is one thing, giving someone money plus mentorship is the next level, money plus mentorship plus community is the next level, and those three things plus some type of technical help is what you're saying is the pinnacle. Yep. And I don't disagree with that. So we said, okay, we have the first, second, and third, how do we get the fourth? And so we've been talking about what would it look like for us to start building a centralized pool of resources so that can actually do things like you're talking about SEO, AdWords, other types of paid acquisition, copywriting. I think longer term, that's our vision. I don't know that we have the resources. Like we're kind of bootstrapping an accelerator right now, as weird as that sounds. It's not like we have buckets of money to be able to pull that off or buckets of staff, you know, to be able to pull that off. But it's something that's on my mind and I want to start moving on it as soon as we can. And so it's just going to be a matter of getting to the point where it makes sense. So I, that's a kind of a weird, vague answer, but it's like, I want to do that. I agree. Yeah. And the reason I pulled together that list was I was just trying to think about like, what are the most beneficial things for these founders? You know, like what are the things that they need the most? And I think most of the partnerships that I've seen be the most successful. Now, you know, Tiny Seed isn't taking 50% or 30% of your company. But when you do make that kind of deal with the devil, when you do enter one of these relationships where you are giving up a lot of equity, you know, what are some of the things that you should be looking for in return? Yeah, you should get a big bump. Exactly. Where overnight your business is off and running, or overnight you have rankings, or overnight this person sprinkled their special sauce on this business and it's blooming into a flower. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, to give folks an idea, tiny seed, we plan to take, it's going to depend, but it's going to be between eight and 14, 15% of a business. So it's definitely a super minority stake, you know, which is, we think we, we bring more than that value, obviously, or we wouldn't do it. One of the questions I have, Rob, about the percentage is, uh, you know, somewhere between eight and 14%. It doesn't seem like a big percentage, right? In the beginning. But start to think about it like five, six, seven years down the road. That 10% starts to compete with a lot of things like your kid's college education, a new house, a down payment, medical procedure. So I think up front initially, 
okay, it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but what do you think it's going to feel like five, six, seven years down the road? I feel like, A, a company has to get pretty big for that to be a substantial portion, right? So if your company never grows or you just wind up being a small six-figure business, then it doesn't compete with the college education. So you have to build probably a multi-million dollar business for that, in my opinion, to start feeling like, ooh, ouch, that's a you know substantial portion of equity. The question I would ask myself if I were in those shoes was, was it worth it? Like, did I get here faster? Or did I toil for, like Rob, did I toil for nine years to get here? Or did I do it in two because you know, I was able to get that intro or I was able to get the mentorship or the guidance or, you know, whatever, maybe it was the money or because I was able to focus full time. I don't know. I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. And I'm not dogmatic about it for sure. I don't think that going through tiny seed or taking money as a bootstrapper is something for everyone. You know what I mean? And certain folks just don't want to travel that path. And that's totally cool. But there are founders out there who can get there way faster. And I think that we, as well as the other, I mean, this is a space that's developing. So this is not a tiny seat ad. This is a, there are several folks who are doing similar things. I do think there's a place for us to provide more value than we take. I mean, that's the entire premise of like making this founder friendly that Anar and I have thought through over and over. It's like, how do we do this in a way that's fair? That in that six, seven years, people look back and they say, yeah, that was totally worth it because it made it way faster, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really the goal. I think that's one of the reasons we're talking here, Rob, is because you're one of the few people that I know that can have a conversation, argue against what you're doing in a lot of cases and sure. and say, hey, you know, this isn't for everybody. I do think that this is for some people. I do think this isn't for other people. It is interesting to me, though, to think about what it looks like six, seven years down the road when the company is successful, multi-million dollar company, and you're still writing those checks. Because I think for you, that's where the win comes. And rightfully so, right? Like I've invested a bunch of time. I've invested a bunch of money. I've interviewed all these people. Like now it's time to get paid. And I'm curious because I haven't talked to too many people that have been in this situation. And I hope it is a situation that you're in is how people will feel once they have to make that decision. Once they have to make that, you know, write that check. First, you write the 9% 9 check to the state of California. And then you write the 9% check to Tiny Seed. And then you write the 9% check to your charter school, you know. Part of the reason I say that though, is because I think a lot of people, they get detached like from the beginnings, like they forget what happened. They just arrive and they're like, oh yeah, I built this company. And like, I guess I needed those guys. That $100,000 was so long ago, you know, I don't know. Yeah. In terms of like staying in the program, what's the plan for Tiny Seed? Is it one year? Is it two years? Is this multi-year? Yeah. The accelerator portion where we have the mentorship and the calls and and all that is a one-year accelerator program. And that's longer than you know all the other accelerators. If you think of Y Combinator, they're like three months or four months, I believe. And we were able to do that because we're remote, you know, and it'd be hard to ask someone to move somewhere for a year. And because we're going to be backing a lot of subscription software and subscription software takes forever. SaaS apps take a long time. You know, venture capitalists believe that if you add 5 million bucks to a company, that it accelerates the growth. And that works in some cases, but with SaaS, it just kind of doesn't, you know, unless it's at the exact point where you're trying to scale and you need money to do it. SaaS often just takes a heck of a long time to build up. And so we want to give founders as long as possible to get there. And then after that year, what ends is the calls with everybody. I mean, by that time, the founders are going to know each other so well 
that I'm guessing they will all keep in touch. I would love to have reunions, you know, whether it's online or past that. And of course, the intros and the support and the advice will continue. I mean, I, I have investments I made back in 2011, and I'm still offering advice and intros and, you know, whatever else to those founders. So that's how it looks. Well, I think that's also something that's really unique about you, Rob, which is like, if I had to say like, there's one guy that's not in it for the money, it, like it might be you, like you actually enjoy doing these things, like the money is one component. So I think it's really important when you choose who your investor is, because you're obviously passionate about this and you're willing to spend tons of time. And you know, you're not one of these guys that's just going to like hang up the phone, like oh, the year's over, the accelerator's over. Like this is actually what you really enjoy doing. And you've proven that because you put on a conference for the last umpteen years and you've done this podcast for free for the last 10 years, you know, so this is something that you're really interested in. I just don't see you as being super money motivated, I guess, when it comes to that. Thank you. That's, I would say that that's exactly how I feel inside. So it's good to hear that. Rob, I want to ask you one more question. And it's one I've thought a lot about in terms of, you know, not necessarily what bootstrappers need, not necessarily what VC provides, but more along the lines of you running this accelerator. And I think you've you've actually answered it in more ways than one because I think you like being around founders and I think you like being around this environment. So this that might be the answer for you. But I think as an investor, I have a question. And the question is, why not buy these businesses instead of investing in them? Wouldn't it make sense to just buy the businesses and get rid of the founders and then bring a batch of managers in and, and have Sherry and you and whoever else come in and like find the right founder essentially or find the right person to run this company? Boy, I don't think so. But I'm betting on the founder. Like the founder is the person with the secret sauce and the spark and bringing managers in way later in a process. You know, once a company is multi-million dollars and has a team in place, you can bring a manager in. But the person who can go from zero to seven figures is very unique. Very, I mean, there, there are not that many people a lot of us try, and there's some luck involved, there's some skill, there's some perseverance. Finding those people are few and far between. The other thing is, I think it would just be, just financially, it would be really expensive, right? I mean, these founders don't want to sell the company that they've been working on for two years that is just now generating a few thousand dollars. They have so much in it, and they believe in the potential of it that I think they would want a lot of money for it. I mean, that's kind of a secondary concern. I actually think the first one is way more important is that just the founder is probably the best person to do it. So I would want to I would want to keep them involved. If you were to think, well, maybe I could just buy it from them and then have them run it. I, they're just not motivated at that point because they want to own it, right? They're founders. So they want to you know, have a big chunk of ownership. It's an interesting thought experiment, but I don't see how that would necessarily pan out you know, from a financial perspective and even from a management perspective. What do you think? Do you think that's, a, that's the way to go though? I think you're right. At the early stages of these companies, like these founders are uniquely suited to grow these products. I'm just not sure if they're going to be successful at it, right? And that's what you're trying to figure out is like, not only is the product going to be successful, but is the founder going to be successful? So there's a lot of X factors there. You know, I think the ways that VCs, traditional VCs get around this is basically they make a bunch of bets and only a couple of them need to hit for it to be successful because then they turn into multi-million or billion dollar exits. What you're doing are tiny seed. It's a little bit different. And maybe you can speak to this, but I think you're, you are spending a ton of time trying to figure out who the founders are, trying to figure out who the products are because you're not playing as fast and loose with your money. I mean, I don't think you're looking for a 1% hit rate. 
what percentage hit rate are you looking for? A lot more than 1%. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I don't, I don't even have an exact number in mind. I just know that I keep coming back to my 12 angel investments, which isn't that many, right? But all of the companies that have gone bust have been the ones that went on to raise Series A. They're gone. Interesting. Yeah. And all of the companies that I've backed that have been more of this tiny seed type where it's a mostly B2B SaaS and it's founders who I know probably don't want to raise another round and they're growing at a they're growing at a good clip, but they're not like burning themselves out. All those companies are still operating and all of them are still growing at this point. And so for me, it's been a pretty stark comparison, you know, in terms of success rate. I mean, picking and building base hits is 10 times easier than maybe even 50 times easier than picking and building unicorns, you know, billion dollar companies. So I think the hit rate will be substantially higher. Real quick on that idea of the companies that went to bust raise Series A. And that basically what that means is they went to raise outside funds again, outside of their initial investment. Are you going to stop people that you invest in from raising A? Are you going to discourage it? Um, Because that's some interesting insight that you have. No, we're setting stuff up so that founders can never raise again if they want to. They can raise rounds in the future if they want to. We're being really careful not to have any anything that would deter future investors. These are often called poison pill clauses that accidentally, sometimes accidentally and sometimes on purpose, keep you from raising future rounds. And we're making dang sure not to have that because we want people to have optionality, right? Some of these businesses, they might think when you start, "Ah, I'm just going to build a little six, seven figure kind of lifestyle-ish business. And if things start to take off, I mean, that's how Drip started. I thought we were just going to build a little thing that was going to pay for my beach apartment, you know? And and in fact, it started taking off and I was like, whoa, all right, well, maybe we should raise a round. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. So I think you don't know what you have until you get there and you got to keep that optionality. Rob, thanks a lot for being on the show. I want to ask you if there's anything else that you'd like to leave the listeners with. No, I just, I always enjoy coming on, talking to you. If folks want to catch up with me and hear what I'm doing, I'm at robwalling.com. And Tiny Seed, of course, is at tinyseed.com. Big thanks to Rob for coming by the show and sharing his thoughts about investing in, in what typically have been bootstrap businesses. As you can tell, this is a really live issue here at the show, and it was cool to have Rob come by and share you know, what he's up to. And we're thinking about this stuff all the time. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Ian and I are going to flesh out some of our thoughts in a future episode. And those thoughts, you know, depend on people like Rob sharing his experience with us openly and transparently. It depends on emails we get from listeners and comments we get on the show. And so uh, we appreciate the conversation. In the meantime, if you'd like to weigh in or check out the links to everything mentioned in this show, it'll be posted at tropicalmba.com slash tinyseed. So thanks for listening. And as always, we'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.